For your protection, I need to ask. I haven't so far, so how much time do I have? 45 minutes. Okay. Might run slightly over. Okay. Uh, my name is Soren, and I'm glad to be here with you. It's an, it's an honor, and I want to thank the folks on the committee for inviting me and taking good care of me and all that good stuff. I've done this a couple times, and it's amazing. I, I, just, I enjoy it very much, so I hope something good happens. I will say that I am now a grateful member of Al-Anon. I was not when I came through the door. There are all these damn women messing up my life, one after another. Nothing was my fault. Uh, I've been married four times. I've been unmarried four times. I know how to do both those things quite quickly and efficiently. Now, be married, that's another one. But I do want you to know you do have a marriage. That being the case, you have a marriage expert in front of you. I did not make one mistake in three and a half marriages. And I try to say that with a straight face. It doesn't work very well anymore. Um, and, and it's funny because some people start thinking three and a half. How does that work instead of the obvious absurdity of the claim? But that was how I operated. If there's, you know, I'm sorry, sweetie, there's been a mistake made. And since I'm not, I'm not capable of it, that pretty much leaves you. And that was not exactly a recipe for success. Oh, I should also throw in for those of you that think your speaker is supposed to be in a suit and tie. Uh, they should dress up. I did dress up. This is me dressed up. So <laughs> I got obnoxious one night and said, and if you're bothered by that, go to a meeting. <clears throat> but I won't say that tonight. So I am an expert. I uh, know virtually everything. I knew virtually everything when I came in the, pro uh, the program. I could tell you exactly how to solve whatever was your problem. Because the more I did of that, of course, the less I focused on what I needed to deal with. I uh, have this capability. I still have it. I don't use it nearly as much. You know the kind of TVs that are widescreen and there's this little picture down in the corner? I can take my widescreen contribution and shrink it down to the little picture in the corner and take your little contribution and blow it up to big screen and talk so angrily and obnoxiously for so long that we never quite get around to my part of the problem. It wasn't a really good uh, problem-solving tactic but it did keep me from having to deal with a lot of stuff that I didn't want to deal with. That's all it did. It never once solved a problem. Now, as I talk about the various stories tonight, I will number the various wives so you and I can both keep track of them because it gets a little confusing sometimes. One of the really funny things from my point of view, probably not my wife's point of view at the time, was to watch my mother as she got into her 60s and 70s and even 80s go down the list trying to figure out which name to call this particular wife. My style of relationship was rather like a garbage truck going down a straight road, losing its load progressively. Uh, the flag on the truck flying over it proudly says, I know what I'm doing. People periodically say, need any help? Nope, nope, I know what I'm doing. And I did. I mean, my, I really thought I knew what I was doing and that the problems that happened were not me. They were someone else. I went to my first, my, my son went into drug and alcohol treatment uh, at age 15 he tells me now he's involved in what, uh, when the Russians did it, we called revisionist history. He tells me now that his mother and I sent him to prison in Florida. That would be drug and alcohol treatment, and that everything I thought was, everything I said to him was BS. And, and he manages to skip over 10 years of drinking and drugging and, and almost killing himself, but be that as it may, I understand that kind of narrow thinking because I've done a lot of it where you block out anything that doesn't fit the picture that you want to pretend exists. 
went to my first meeting in Florida when he was in treatment. There was a woman in purple who ran the meeting and dominated the meeting. I didn't hear one good thing. She was purple, had a purple hat and a purple shirt and a purple blouse and a purple pants and purple socks and purple shoes. I presume she had purple everything, but I don't know that to be sure. What I do know is I didn't hear one good thing. Somewhere in the following three to six months, I went uh, to a meeting in the Seattle suburb of Renton at the south end of Lake Washington. And that night I heard all kinds of things that were good. Now, I don't mean Eureka, I found it and I dramatically changed. I just mean I heard some stuff that made sense. I wish that I had recordings of the two meetings because chances are the content of the meeting was upwards of 95% the same and that the difference was not the lady in purple but the openness of the person who wasn't listening the first time and came in somewhat willing to listen the second time. I left my first wife uh, after about four years. It was about 1971-72. She was a terrible person. She was merely loving, kind, giving, caring, committed, passionate, if you listed all the positive attributes that somebody could have, she had virtually all those. But it was the 70s, and it was in the midst of the sexual revolution. There was something exciting out there, and I wasn't getting turned on 24-7, so something had to be wrong with her. She begged me to work at that. I wouldn't, because I knew she was the problem. Uh, and I bailed. And then I jumped into one thing after another looking for that person. Because your assignment, if you happen to get married to me at any of those times, was you will make me happy forever and ever. And if you fail, you're out of here. Next. That really wasn't a recipe for success in marriage either. She was a good person, and she was willing to work at it. She literally begged me to work at it, and I wouldn't because I was, had so convinced myself that she was the problem. In the second marriage, I got what's coming to me. I, I, I married a princess off the hill above the Rose Bowl in Pasadena, and not literally a princess, but an upper-middle-class young lady who was beautiful and been catered to by first her parents and then all the men in her life. And, uh, and I got into that, and, and it was the kind of thing where she would be happy when she got the right collection of stuff. Now, I'm a fairly simple living farm boy, it turns out. I didn't think so, but it turns out from eastern Washington. But I got into trying to bring into being the stuff that would make her happy, but it was always just down the road and around the corner a bit from where we were. And in time, I wasn't doing that effectively enough, so she took up with someone else, which was interesting to watch happen because I'd done that to somebody else, and to have it done to me had a bit of a different feeling about it, a considerably different feeling about it um, when somebody did it to me as opposed to my self-righteously doing that to someone else. Wife number three had very sec serious childhood sexual abuse that went on from her pre-teenage years into her mid-teenage years. Um, the, I, my now 31-year-old son, uh, I got out of that relationship. He was three when his mom and I got married. I know now that as she worked out what she had to work out in terms of sexual abuse, that she was doing what may have, well, I'll use the language, saved her life. And I don't mean that she would have died otherwise. But she kept trying to push it down, push it down, not deal with it, push it down. And it wouldn't stay pushed down. And she came to where she had to deal with it. And I did not have any set of tools to equip me to go with her on that adventure. 
to back off and, and let it be. I think uh, it's worthless to say, I suppose, but I think now, given the Al-Anon tools, after 15 years, I could probably go on an adventure like that and be on hold and be on standby and, and let it work out. I couldn't at the time. We were separated three different times. Um, at one point, she said she'd come home and she'd stay if I promised never to get angry with her again. Now, I'm not noted for operational wisdom in relationships, but this is the time I made one good move. I said, I can't promise God or anybody that I'll never be angry with him again. I mean, that's just not in the cards. And I don't mean that that would give me, um, you know, that therefore with my anger I should beat you up, although that was often my tactic with words and anger, what I would do. But I was at least honest at that point instead of promising what would get her home and then go through the same thing again because I didn't yet at that time have the set of tools that would be useful and productive. The wife number four had uh, been, she was an alcoholic. She had been to treatment. She'd been to AA but wasn't going any longer. But this is the, it's interesting, the set of choices sort of had a downhill uh, inclination as to the probability of success. Wife number four had all the problems of number three and alcoholism on top of it. And it was uh, wild and passionate and fun and everything good at the beginning. And uh, we ended up not having a platform to stand on together. And we're still good friends today. I, I've talked to her the night before I headed this way. We're good friends. And as a matter of fact, she'd kind of like to get back together, and I, I now know myself well enough to know that I don't think that would be be workable. I guess on the good news side is that I'm fairly good friends with three out of four former wives. The last one says he wasn't worth a damn as a husband, but he's a really good grandfather. And I, uh, that's that's got to be worth something, I think. How did I get into Al-Anon? Well, there were three things that happened. I don't know the order of the three things. I really can't remember. In marriage number four, there's this new relationship with this woman who was going to make me happy forever and ever and ever. And, uh, and things were going sideways early on. She just was failing to make me happy. And I know, uh, I, don't, I don't even remember exactly the event now, I may have it written down someplace, but that played a part in it because it somehow there was there were three things that didn't change me and break me wide open. They were chinks in the armor of little beginnings where it kind of came and pointed toward me and said, well, maybe, maybe, just maybe this has something to do with you. So that was one. Second one, my wife number three, when my son was in Florida uh, in treatment, we went down for a parents' weekend the same weekend and we got put through the same push to deal with 12-step thinking and decision-making and, and experience as the kids did and the lack of freedom the kids did. And you could push other people to be honest. And she stood me up in front of the group and talked about how she felt when I was angry. Now, I know today that's all she did. It felt like she was blaming me. But what she really did was talk about how she felt when I was angry. And I, I was so offended by her doing this to me, whatever that means, and it was a self-serving analysis as opposed to an honest analysis, that I was going to leave right then and never come back and forget them. I wasn't going to let them treat me this way. And one of the folks on staff there said, well, you could leave. It'll just cost you more to go home. You might want to hang on for the rest of the weekend and then go home, and if you don't come back, that's a decision you can make. So I thought, well, money's important. I'll hang on for the weekend, and I did that. And I came home, and I'm still very upset. I mean, why would she treat me that way in front of all these people? 
But then I got to thinking that as she was talking that night and other people, as she talked about how I was when I was angry, and there had been a parents group to raise funds for the program in Florida where, I, I mean, anger went with me everywhere I went, and they'd seen me in the anger mode too. And as she was talking about Soren in the anger mode as not being someone you'd want to cozy up to when he was angry, there was folks sitting there nodding their heads. And I thought, well, they're honest people. Uh, hmm, maybe, no, no, there's got to be another explanation. So my first, my first level of, of reaction to that was, well, if the shoe doesn't fit, don't put it on. She's been a little nutty here of late anyway. So, I mean, you know, it was just a handy, you know, it's not mine, uh, handy pretense, I will say now, that it's not mine. Don't put it on. It's just her being crazy again. She's been that a lot lately. And then the second level was thinking about folks in the parents group. And I'd been okay on those things, except I kept thinking about it. And as I kept thinking about it, I thought, well, Karen has always been a very honest person. She doesn't go around lying. She tells the truth. Hmm, could it be that this has something to do with me? And it's not like I woke up. It was just sort of like, maybe I should consider that a little bit. It's not highly probable it has anything to do with me, but just in case, I might should check that out. One of the things that really broke it open for me was when my son was in treatment, he got, it was a, a fairly tightly run program and it was long. It could go for a year, a year and a half. And you had zero freedom in the beginning. You didn't go to the bathroom without somebody grabbing your belt loop or looping your arm in their arm. And you got freedom by being honest. Real push through the 12 steps to be honest. And you could go to AA meetings, which he did because he wanted to get out of that place. And, and one night he took me up to his room. The family he stayed with had had a child go through the program he was in. So family life was 12-step based. And then they'd go to a treatment center for both school education and 12-step education during the week. He took me up to his room one night and opened AA's big book to what was then page 449 and had me read these words. I don't say them perfectly, but it's pretty close. And... Uh, he didn't smack me upside the head with the book, which, looking back now, would have made some sense, given some of what he went through as a child. And I read these words that said, Acceptance is the answer to all my problems today. When I am disturbed, it's because some person, place, thing, or situation, some fact of my life is not acceptable to me, and I can find no serenity until I accept that person, place, thing, or situation as being exactly what it's supposed to be at this moment. Nothing, absolutely nothing, happens in God's world by mistake. And I can argue with that because little children shouldn't die young. That's true. That's not what it's talking about. Good people shouldn't die young. That's true. That's not what it's talking about. Why should the bad guys get rich and live forever? That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about is my higher power my higher power or am I the higher power and the world revolves around me? Now, I didn't get that that night. But again, it was like, hmm, maybe this. Oh, and of course, as, as you know, it goes on to talk about when acceptance goes up, serenity goes up. When acceptance goes down, serenity. I said that backwards. When acceptance goes up, no, I did say it right. Yeah. And that's expectations that's converse. Acceptance goes up, serenity goes up. Acceptance goes down, serenity goes up, down. Expectations go up, serenity goes down. Expectations go down, serenity goes up. And that all, again, sort of, it was like, hmm, again, maybe something I should think about. But no, no burning bush kind of thing happened there. One thing that happened in uh, fairly early in marriage number four was I, I if uh, I just I like to bug people when they're doing things wrong because I'm so right. I mean, it, it would be a waste. I mean, uh, people need to understand when you know everything, it's a burden. It's a fairly heavy burden to carry around because you just have to share your knowledge. And people are so generally unappreciative when you do that. 
So one night, where my my wife number four is at the kitchen sink doing dishes, and I started in here her on her over some little thing. I have no idea what the little thing was. I mean, some of these things are so transferable from one situation to a. I don't know what the issue was, but I got about I don't know some time into it. Don't know if that was 30 seconds or three minutes, and all of a sudden I just stopped dead. I'm just mouth closed. And she stood there with her back to me, did not look at me, and she said. Did you just tell yourself to shut up? <laughs> and I said, I don't even know what I said. I said, well, not exactly, because I didn't exactly. But it occurred to me that I'd been in this exact same situation 50 or 100 or 500 times before. It had never led to any good. Maybe just this once you should consider not going there. And I just stopped it. Now, I'm not, I can't tell you I stopped it forever and ever. I'm sure that did not happen, but it did happen that night. I, I will talk about the subject of abuse, and I don't like it, and it usually gets to me when I talk about it, because I don't, I don't do this to women. That's Bad guys do that. And I'm not a bad guy. My weapons are words. And young or old, I can chew you up and tear you down and tear you apart, just using words and not touch you. And if there's any of the gentlemen here or anybody at all here tonight who may have that kind of thing going, you might want to give that a look because that was a hard, hard, hard one for me to... Wife number three kept telling me I was abusive, and I'm not abusive. I don't beat people up. How could I be abusive? I think of a time for which, yeah, given what I now believe, I should have been arrested if, there, if it had been recorded and somebody could see it. And I'm, I'm smiling, but it's not funny because it's a sad... Um, I guess I'd say it's one of the least proud moments of my life. Wife number three got into Alan on a year and a half to two years before I did, and she was changing things. And we had a really messed up relationship, but it had been dependable for some time, and suddenly the boat's rocking, and I can't stand it. I now know I was afraid, but I would never have admitted to being afraid because I was not afraid. And she got into both Alan on and personal development stuff, and she decided she had to go up into the San Juan Islands there in northern Puget Sound to a personal development kind of week that cost something like $700, and we didn't have $700, but she just had to go, had to go, had to go, had to go. And I said, no, 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 we can't afford it. She had to. Finally, I decided to let her. But the deal was that she was to call me in the middle of the week because I really needed to be in touch with what was going on. She agreed to that. But she got up there and said, I, I need to call my husband. And they said, well, you could do that, but it might interfere with your experience here. And I think they wisely said that now, but I didn't at the time. She didn't call. She did not keep her agreement. I've got her. Not, you know, this is just verbal. She came off the ferry boat in Anacortes. I met her on the ramp to the ferry boat, started chewing on her, chewed on her all the way down the ramp, across the parking lot, to the car, in the car, till she got out of the car. Then I got out of the car and followed around the car, chewing on her. I mean, just giving her incredible hell because she had not kept her agreement. And she ended up getting back in the car and driving back to Seattle area with me, and I can't figure out why she did that. I mean, I... I I don't think I changed. I must have backed off somewhat. She probably said, I'll walk home if you don't shut up, finally. Uh, but as I think about going after her the way I did then, if I saw somebody doing that, I'd call the police. And if, somebody, if I were doing that to someone else and somebody called the police today, I'd say that's what should, have, should happen. I work with kids, and I have nine grandchildren. 
And part of the amazing thing to me, see, I, I really like to believe when I was one of these people came through the door of Alan on knowing I'd be in and out of here in no time, bright as I, I will now say, allegedly was. And even after 15 years, I do some stuff that just blows me away. I've got a now nine-year-old son, grandson, who's just a charming little guy. I love him to pieces. I'd taken him and his two sisters and another granddaughter to the beach one day. Now, he's a little guy that had watched Jurassic Park either 300 times before he was two years old or maybe only 200 times before he was three years old, so he's a little fearful. So the girls are out in the water playing, and Darius is tippy-toeing down through the beach wondering what monster's going to go out and grab him, and he sees a little crab about the size of my thumbnail, and he goes nuts. <laughs> now, all somebody would need to do is put their arms around him and say, you don't need to be afraid of that little thing. That's what I did second. If you did to my grandson what I did, I would want to hurt you, and I might well hurt you. What the goddamn hell's the matter with you? You're 10,000 times bigger than that. Suddenly, switch tapes. Darius, Darius, you don't need to be afraid of that crab. I mean, what I did second was gentle and kind and caring and loving. And I went back to his home that night and got on my knees and apologized to him and told him I'll never do that again. And started telling him about the crabs. They try to pinch you. They can't. It tickles because they're trying to pinch you and they can't. And they're funny. They walk sideways. Now he's getting interested and wants to see. You know, really kind of wants to meet one of those little critters. But it's interesting to be aware that, uh, seriously, if you did to my grandson what I did, I would come after you because that would not be okay. Wife number three told me behind my anger was fear, and I, of course, denounced that because I've done all kinds of good activist stuff to put myself at risk for the cause of justice. Numerous things. I won't go into that tonight because that's probably not where we should go. So I see myself as I'm not afraid of anything. And after my first three years in Elanon, I got to circle around to her and say, guess what? Behind my anger is fear every single time. Commonly involving abandonment, sometimes other stuff maybe, but almost always involving abandonment. And one of the patterns is that I'll get scared and I'll start acting so obnoxious in my fear as to virtually drive the person away who I want to be close. Another, I work with kids. I'm a retired school teacher, and the only reason I mention that is because several of my stories will make that obvious if I don't say it. Um, one day, I'd gone to school, and the teacher was doing standardized testing, and she'd finished with half the class, and the other half had to finish, so she sent me with the kids who were done to another room, and the kids in the other room were working, and this one guy was sitting working with his back to me, and he appeared to be working, but when the time came to check on what he'd done at the end of the time. I hadn't checked meanwhile because he appeared to be right on the job. He hadn't done a thing. So I said, well, come in, stay with me at noon, do your work then. I mean, it's always okay if you want to do it later instead of, you know, if you would to do it at playtime, that's okay, I'm available. But one of my patterns is I'll have somebody do something like that and then get resentful because I have to be there with them. So he's doing, he comes in without complaint, he doesn't argue, he's working quietly, he's focused, and I'm resentful. So I'm sitting up there and I say to him, you know, if it wasn't for you, I wouldn't have to be here babysitting you. He says, you're not babysitting me. Yes, I am. No, you're not. Yes, I am. If it wasn't for you, I wouldn't have to be here. And I just kept after him. I mean, I don't know how many times, four, five, six times, maybe seven. And I'm chewing on him. Finally, he said very forcefully, but I don't consider it disrespectfully, or maybe it was just such truth that I couldn't ignore it or make it into something else. Finally, he looked up at me and he said, why don't you just leave me alone? And I sat there for a second and thought, why don't I just leave you alone? He was doing exactly what I'd asked him to do. 
He was doing it without complaint. He was doing it at his inconvenience. I had asked him to do it. And I'm the one giving him a bad time for making him be there. Hmm. And I circled around with him and said, you know, there's an adult here who's supposed to be setting a good example. (laughs) That's not what you just got. And you're absolutely right. And I'm absolutely wrong. And he seemed to be fine with that once I'd taken responsibility for my part. And I'm not excusing my part. I'm just saying kids end up being more forgiving. One day I threw the wrong girl out of class. We went down the hall for a bathroom break and we're coming back. And a girl punched a boy. And I saw it with my own eyes. I mean, I saw it. And we get back in the room and I said, you shouldn't have done that. She said, I didn't do it. I said, I saw you do it. I didn't do it. My eyes don't lie to me. People fairly often do. But my eyes don't lie to me. I didn't do it. I said, your teacher told me if you gave me a hard time, send you next door. Get on out of here. I didn't go. And I'm getting on down the road with the rest of the class. And there's a little voice in my mind now that just won't shut up sometimes. And it said, you sure threw the right girl out? Of course, I saw it. Are you really sure? Of course, I'm sure. I saw it. Are you really, really, really sure? Of course, I'd testify other oath. I was sure. Little voice says, well, it wouldn't hurt to ask the boy involved. Oh, what the hell? What a waste of time. Fred, did I throw the right girl out? So I go next door, get her, apologize to her in the hall, bring her back into the classroom, apologize to her in front of the whole classroom. Uh, and, And somebody said, well, what happened to the original girl? I have no idea. Now, the deal was it was pink day and all the girls are wearing their little pink blouses. And the only difference, there's two little fairly stocky girls, little round oval faces. The one difference was a little frill around somebody's. They could have been twins otherwise. But I was just flat out wrong. I was in the same class the next day. The same girl is there acting like this whole thing didn't happen. And I said to her, you know, you're much more forgiving than I am. If somebody did to me what I did to you yesterday, I would be mad at them for the next six months to ten years, minimum. And she's like, eh, you know, down the road. Now, I really do my job fairly well most of the time. But there are those days that I go out on the branch thinking I know so much and I can make it work and I don't need any help and I don't need to ask for additional information or check my facts. And the branch goes. <laughs> another, another school, I, uh, a, a girl was out in the hall where she shouldn't have been. And I said, you know, either come in or go to the office. And she wouldn't do that. Now, all I had to do at that point was simply call the office and say, you know, there's this girl that won't do what she's supposed to be doing. But I didn't do that. I decided I can make this work. After all, this is a really bright person you've got standing in front of you. All evidence to the contrary, mind you. I'm clear about that now. So she wouldn't come in. And so I got, kept on her case. And she, we were, the room was right by the uh, hallway, end of the hallway, going outside, go down three stairs. And she went down the steps, around the corner, kicked a garbage can, and sat down by the wall outside. And I kept on her case and kept on her case and kept on her case. Finally, she came back in the room and was putting on this big boo-hoo act. <laughs> you know. Still won't do what she was supposed to be doing. I t- told her to go to the office. I finally said, take your baby hack and go to the office. No. And uh, I don't know if she ended up in the office or not. I do know at the end of the day I wrote the teacher a long letter because I'd become clear if I'd asked for help earlier, this whole thing wouldn't happen. And I talked to the principal and told him what had happened. and said, I'm glad to talk to the parents or anybody. I know I didn't handle this well. I left the school talking out loud to God, and I don't usually do that. But that day I said, you know, that's interesting. Again, today I didn't bother asking your help or anybody else's. Well, it turns out the girl's parents 
our head of the parent organization in the school, and the principal is not one for dealing with conflict, and he asked me the next day, called me on the phone and said, would you like to meet with the girl's parents? I said, sure. He said, well, the deal is they want to talk about what you did but not what their daughter did. Can you do that? I said, I don't think I can, but let me think it over and I'll call you back. And I thought over and came and called him back and said, I won't do that. I'll come in and talk about the whole thing and label clearly where I went, where I should have done it differently. But I won't pretend her part didn't exist. And I was really mad at them. I had about seven or eight more days teaching lined up in that school. It was my regular spot at that point, and I lost about $1,000. But after about 10 days, I figured out that the first cause problem that situation wasn't the little girl. Yeah, she wasn't doing what she should be doing, who had early on a chance to do it completely differently. Did he ask for help? No, because he knew what he was doing. He could make this thing work. And I had to get over blaming her for the results of my behavior. With uh, wife number three, got into Al-Anon twice and took off like a rocket, left me in the dust, and then quit. Then went back in again a couple years later and took off like a rocket and then quit. We were separated three times also, I think. Three may be a magic number here. I'll have to give that some thought. Uh, I was asked to speak at a AA gratitude dinner in Puyallup, Washington. And I called Laura to see if she'd like to go with me. And she said yes. And we were talking and talking. And then all of a sudden, it was one of those conversations where it goes from peace and love and harmony to World War III in 12 seconds or less. She slammed down the phone, I'm sure without provocation. Actually, I'm not at all sure of that. I'm sure it was with provocation, but at that time I was still believing everything that happened was not my fault. I didn't call her back right away because she had caller ID and I knew she wouldn't answer. So I just sat and thought and thought and thought. And I called her back, and she'd been trying to get me to go to marriage counseling, and I wouldn't do it because I didn't have a problem. It was those, everybody else, especially her, that needed to do that, not me, certainly. And I called her back, and the first thing I said to her is, you know, we should do that counseling because we're not going to end up staying together. And it wasn't just a ploy. I mean, somehow even this hard head came to understand that. So we go to Puyallup, and, and I'm a reasonably good speaker. The guy... Uh, for the AA speaker was Patrick Wickman. I don't know if you'd heard him. It's just a touching, touching story. He's in Hawaii now, a touching story of somebody who, well, <laughs> he was grew up in the age where, you know, you, you could be drinking too much and they'd send you in, either send you to jail or send you to the Army to make a man out of you. So they sent him to the Army, and they sent him to Thule, Greenland, to build an airstrip at the air base at Thule because there won't be any alcohol there. And, of course, within a short time, he messes that up. And so they think the cold didn't work. We'll send him to the Philippines and up a river there, and, and uh, they won't get in a problem there. They didn't have any. They were on this, this motorized barge hooked to a floating village, and uh, they didn't have any booze, but they'd heard their, they, they, they were got hankering from some warm female company. And they know they shouldn't mess with the locals, but heard there were some pretty hot numbers at the village just down the river and around the corner. So they took off in their motorized barge to go down to the village around the corner. And unfortunately, they forgot to detach from the floating village to which they had been attached. And it caused some consternation among, among the locals. And he ended up being thrown out of the military and, and uh, falling down drunk in somebody's garage or small room on the back of the house. And that looks like life's over until the hand of AA comes by and somebody reaches out and by God's grace, I'll use religious language, translate as you need to. He reaches back and now he's this person that can go anywhere 
any time to help somebody. That transformation of life, that's such an incredible thing, whether on the AA side or ours. And Laura came out of the meeting that night saying, that's the best thing I've ever heard. It's just what I'm needed to hear. And I'm thinking, so why don't you pick it up? It's there for you. Now, there's a story. I'm going to jump out to something and come back to right to that point. At one point, about three years into Al-Anon, I decided Laura should go because she wasn't doing AA anymore. And I needed Al-Anon a little, but I'm living with this person that needs Al-Anon a ton. And, and the only decent thing is to get her there. And if you know everything, you don't waste your time consulting or offering the opportunity or suggesting the possibility of. I chose a really good meeting, Renton Thursday night. It was my first meeting, and I was there as recently as not last night because I was here, but a week before. Great meeting. So I told her, okay, you're going to Alana, here's the night. Nope. Well, since I'm both bright, allegedly, and articulate, I thought it must be a hearing problem on her part. At this point, several women have told me, you remind me of my husband. I don't think that was a compliment. So since since she couldn't hear my first generous offer, I said it louder. Rejected. Louder. Rejected. Really loud. Rejected. The neighbors are probably saying, go to the meeting, so shut up. I don't know that to be true, but I would stipulate it, as they say, legally. It must have been time for desperate action. I didn't recall making that decision, but given what next, it had to be true. The door was open, the screen door was closed, and I, the person catching on to this program with blazing speed, went over and kicked the front screen door. She said, I'll go to your damn meeting if you're going to act that way. She got in the car. As I walked to the car, even this hard head could understand, maybe, just maybe, that's not a really good way to get somebody to go to their first Al-Anon meeting. You probably knew that real way early on. I didn't. I get in the car, said, you don't have to go. She got out. I went anyway. That was the the only good move of the evening, probably. And I walked into the meeting, and by then I knew Al-Anon was safe because I walked in. I'm good at, as I say, taking my big screen part and shrinking it down. But that night, I know I was carrying a box that had crazy written all over it. I mean, not little letters either. I mean, the big red letters, crazy. And I walked in and told them what I did. It was a a room probably about an eighth this size with 25 or so people in it. And half the folks sat there like, well, that's everyday information. Now, there's nowhere else in my life that kicking a screen door represents everyday information. That's the safety of Al-Anon. And a couple of them laughed and, you know, and that didn't offend me. That gave me comfort because I figured somebody else had done or had come close to doing the crazy, crazy, crazy thing I had just done. The only offensive part of it was a couple of those idiots told me keep coming back. Now, why would a person this bright need to keep coming back to a place like Al-Anon? It's now at least 12 years later, at least. So jumping back to the speaker and so we come out of the speaker in Puyallup and Laura's saying that's the best thing I ever heard it's just what I needed it's just it's so good just right and I'm thinking but not saying it's there for you why don't you pick it up another God's miracle Soren doesn't hammer with his rightness I didn't say anything we got in the car and we're driving up the freeway and I'm thinking so it's there for you why don't you pick it up we're driving along it's about 20 25 mile drive I suppose so we're driving along, and she, she says at me, looks over at me and says, what are you thinking? I'm thinking, damn. And I thought, I am going to ignore her question. Perhaps she will forget. 
Now, I once owed Infernal Revenue twenty, no, $30,000. The chance of Laura forgetting her question is about the probability, the same probability as IRS forgetting I owe them $30,000, but it's my best hope. Mm. We go about two or three more miles, and without, she looks over at me again quietly and says, What are you thinking? And I'm thinking, double damn. I'm thinking, okay, Soren, answer. Answer once. Answer quietly. Answer gently. Answer honestly. And shut up. And I said, I'm puzzled. You come out of there saying it's the best thing you ever heard. Just what you needed to hear. And it's there for you and you won't pick it up. And I'm puzzled. I drove a little while farther and, and without looking at me, she said very quietly, be patient with me. God's not done with me yet. Now, I have to also jump back and say I heard some really dumb things when I first came to al I mean, just incredibly dumb stuff. Time takes time. Duh. If nothing changes, nothing changes. Duh. Would you rather be right or would you rather be happy? I'm already right, thank you very much. Now I'd like to be happy. That might possibly suggest I didn't get the question, but I'm not sure of that, but perhaps. But the dumbest of all was this one about wherever I go, there I am. Duh! I mean, that was just so dumb I couldn't believe it. So, oh, I went to jail over a tangle with my stepdaughter at one point. She'd been living at our house. She came to stay for eight days, and eight months later, she was still there. And, and it, after eight months, her mom had the audacity to ask her for $100 a month for what she was getting from the state to help you know, cover expenses. And, oh, Mom, you're trying to bleed me dry. Now, this was not my business, basically, other than I could use the $100. But being the bright person I was, I got into the tangle between Mika and her mom. And Mika was in the bathroom, and I came in with my bathrobe on and a towel. And we needed her to get out of there so I could take a shower and... I said, you know, Mika, if you don't like the terms here, go someplace else and find a better deal. Oh, Soren, why don't you shut up? I've heard that before. And I heaved the towel in her face. Her testimony to the police was I punched her, wrapped my hand in the towel and punched her. I now kind of wish I had because for what happened next, I might as well have because I'd have knocked her butt in the bathtub if I'd have done that. And I know I didn't do that, though she still thinks I do. And I understand that perceptions can be different. And again, I ended up going to jail and forced into some counseling, which was not a bad deal. The counseling was an anger management kind of thing. A whole bunch of us there. The first thing the, the counselor asked was, so how many of you don't think you should be here? And everybody raises their hand, of course, myself very much included. And I might even have been right this time. He says then, he says, well, how many of you on another occasion did something that didn't cause you to get here that maybe should have got you? And about a third of us raised our hands. So it was a good journey for me have to, to have to deal with that. I didn't like it then. I still don't like the way it came down, but everything happens for a reason. And I learned some stuff I would not have learned otherwise. My son Josh, who's now 31, has his little guy Darius. Darius has two sisters, and Josh won't let Darius visit his sisters. And he at one point for a whole year didn't visit Darius himself, and I, I got in... I learned a lesson through that because I was headed to California to visit my grandchildren in the Pasadena area. 
I said, Josh, you really need to do this. Get on the job. Get off your butt and get on the job. He says, I know. I just got to walk the, through the fire and do it. And I came home from Pasadena, and he's sitting watching the fire instead of walking through it. And I got on his case heavily and said, that's just, because in my family, you don't do that to kids. That's just not fair. You don't do that. There might be some sense of not understanding detachment at this point that's coming through to you. So I just really pushed him and, and finally says, I suppose you think Tanya does everything right. That's his now former wife. And when he brought her up as the standard of how it was going to operate, I unloaded on him. I mean, I just, it was an unholy blast. All verbal. And he listened, and then he said, well, since you don't want me in your life, and he was gone for a year, and I created it. I was right on the issue. He wasn't being responsible. But as somebody in the program once said, if your only tool is a hammer, after a while, everything starts looking like a nail. And I nailed him big time that day, and I don't blame him. I disagree with his analysis of me not wanting him in his life, in my life but I don't blame him for not being willing to take what I sent his way that day. He now has full custody of Darius, and his second wife is on the parenting job with him, and Darius is by far in the best care that he's ever been in. But he's not allowing Darius to see the sisters or the grandmother that kept a roof over his head or the mom that's now out of prison. And when I challenged, I thought very gently proposed that that might be time. That's when I got back the revisionist history version of forcing him to prison and all that good stuff. And what I get to do at this point is I get to trust God and get let God and Josh work out that situation and not play God some more myself because it cost me last time. And I'm not having much to do with him at this point. And he would like me to give up my relationship with the two granddaughters that are Josh's stepdaughters. But have I, having become grandpa to somebody, I don't just kick them to the curb any more than I kick Josh to the curb when things went sideways with him and his mom. I don't do that. And if it means I don't have to do with him and Darius for now, so be it. I trust in time that will sort out. My higher power has periodically through the years said, we need to talk. It wasn't an out loud voice, but there's just this inner sense. We need to talk. And I would assure my higher power again and again, I know what I'm doing. And my higher power would say, we will talk later. It's now later. It's four marriages and 30 years later, and my higher power and I are talking. And that actually means I'm listening. My higher power was trying to tell me stuff all the time, but I was telling him. It was like, okay, HP, we're going for a ride. Hop in the back seat, cover my butt. Let's go. I know what I'm doing. And fairly mercifully, I've been covered fairly well for what could have come my way for my interesting decision-making pattern. And HB has kind of suggested, you need to go be, learn to be friends with someone. You know, it's like a friend of mine in, in the Kennel Men's Al-Anon in the, in the Seattle area says, I think next time I'll date the person first before I get married. <laughs> Might possibly be a good idea. And my higher power has an incredible sense of humor, because I still like to think I know what I'm doing. About a year ago or so, I met a woman in one of the meetings in the Renton area, a woman about exactly half my age. I'm 67. She's 33. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful woman. And uh, she wanted a sponsor. Now, here's another time I made a good move. She was wanting a male sponsor, and I knew it shouldn't be me because, I mean, I was like, that would have been a no-working situation. But later, we became friends, very, very good friends. She is my most 
trusted female friend I've ever had in my life, and I am more trustworthy to her than to any other female in my life. She also would have at one point this past summer have been homeless, and she and her three sons ended up living in my house. And we were not living together. Literally, we lived in the house. We'd be in the the hall between the two. And I love this person, probably like I have not cared. My heart's only gone out to one other person in my whole life the way I can think about it being for her. And every time I try to make another deal with God on how this should play out, God and the female person are both very clear. This is no deal, Thorne. That's not how it's going. You get to be friends. You know, I'm, I'm really clear now that God, that, that life comes at us, God's will and God's way and God's time. And I keep trying to negotiate one or more of those elements. And, and HP says, I thought you were going to trust me this time. I thought we were going to try and do it my way this time. Because I know for a fact if it had become what I wanted it to be, I would have messed it up by now. I would have not have had the experience of learning to be close to someone and not try to manipulate it into something else. And I really haven't. She has at times called me her guardian angel. I've kept her from being homeless at times. I might have, might have helped her too much from some people's point of view. The thing I'm really clear about currently is my life is very much about helping her life work. Now, that's not been bad for short term. But if a year from now my life is about building her life, it is because it isn't building our life. We're not together. It's been good to be helpful. That's a good thing. But a year from now, if I'm still doing what I'm doing, then I don't think I'll be on track because... If I'm going to, I either need to be doing what's absolute best for me or building a life with someone else. And, you know, HP may still have somebody in mind for me. I can't figure out whether there's something around the corner that's going to happen or if my higher power is saying, leave it to hell alone, Soren, your record speaks for itself. And at this point, either one of those is okay because life is good today. I like it. I've got a lot of freedom. I, uh, I like helping people. I like doing things to help people. But I also miss the kind of companionship that an honest relationship could have. And I have to say, I've never had an honest relationship, and I'm not talking about the female persons involved when I say that. The best question I ever got asked in now 15 and a half years of Al-Anon, called up one night to complain about wife number four to somebody that I knew through the Sunday night programs at Valley Hospital there in Renton. I should have called somebody less healthy. So I called up to just complain. That's all I was going to do is complain. And I went on and on and on. And when I stopped to breathe, my friend Dan said, Soren, have you been in this situation before? Yes. Did you react the same way? Yes. And I'm not liking the questions. Did it get you what you wanted? No. If you keep it up, will it cost you this relationship too? Because he knew about the previous three marriages. I said, probably. And I thought, well, at least he's done with his damn questions. Wrong. Fastball time. Soren, are you willing to become the kind of person with whom this relationship could succeed? Being a little hard-headed, I said, but Dan, you don't understand. My wife, my wife, my wife, my wife, my wife. He waited till I stopped to breathe again, and he said, skipped his first four questions and said, Soren, are you willing to become the kind of person with whom this relationship could succeed? Being more than just a little hard-headed, I said, Dan, you don't understand. My wife, my wife, my wife, my wife, my wife. He waited till I stopped to breathe. And he said, Soren, are you willing to become? And by now you know the rest of the question. Being world-class hard-headed, I said, Dan, you do not understand my wife. My wife, my wife. When I stopped to breathe, he said, Soren, are you willing to become the kind of person with whom this relationship could succeed? And I said, yes. Not because I was willing, but because I wanted the question to go away. The question wouldn't go away. 
question became the journey. And I don't mean in one day, you know, I don't mean that. I just mean that it wouldn't go away. And it won't go away today when I try to tell myself something that's not true. And I get asked, as some of you no doubt do, why after 15 years do you still come to Al-Anon? Well, for two reasons. One is it's a giving place for me now. I can model the kind of honesty that I had to see when I first came through the door and had not clue number one on how to be honest. But I observed that it was safe for people to be honest about what they'd done when it, when it was down and dirty and what I'm doing when it's down and dirty. And that's the gift that broke open this journey for me is knowing that it's safe enough to do that. It's a giving place. And the other part is that my autopilot is still set to crazier and hell. There's an acronym that you're probably familiar with. Think. Is it thoughtful? Is it honest? Is it intelligent? Is it necessary? Is it kind? If I run my reaction through that, something fairly decent shows up. When I just react, watch out. It has nothing to do with think. And I don't do that all the time now. I don't do it near as much as I used to. But I still on a given day can do that and be that. And when I come back to Al-Anon, it puts me, I've come into meetings, all right, damn meeting, just try and give me something tonight. It did. I can't sit there in a meeting and not have it begin that wisdom, that knowledge. See, I've never had trouble believing in a higher power, a creator, and that's not a message for anybody there. That part's easy for me. I grew up on the farm. I'd go out at night, stars all over the place, and I'd look up and think, wow, it's so big and I'm so small. But I wasn't small and insignificant. I was small and a part of it somehow. I don't even know how that happened. So that part's been easy. The part that's been hard is thinking that there's a wisdom greater than my own. Now, that's probably laughable to every one of you, and it's laughable to me when I look at it objectively, but I don't look, usually look at it objectively. I need that wisdom. I need access and to listen to that wisdom that's greater than my own. It's interesting because I heard all those dumb things when I first came to Al-Anon. Now I hear lots of good things when I come to Al-Anon. Guess what they are? Time takes time. If nothing changes, nothing changes. Would you rather be right or would you rather be happy? And more than anything else that's on the mug I got for this weekend, wherever I go, there I am. And the part of this that comes back to me is from that journey up Valley Freeway with Laura the night. She said, what are you thinking? And her response after I spoke, and she said, be patient with me. God's not done with me yet. And I know that today to be true of me, of everybody up here, of all of you out there. God's not done with me yet. And if I listen, the good stuff that's already happening will continue to happen and I will do life even more effectively and better for other folks than I am presently. Thank you. It's good to be here with you.